Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. The NFL is in full swing. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well, it never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. All right, folks, this is Jeremy Evans. Uh, This is podcast episode 47 of season two for Believe in Sports Law via the Believe Podcast Network. We have a very special guest with us today, and uh, his name is Brian Hanula. And Brian and I go, um, go way back. We actually went to law school together and he is now an NFL, uh, certified NFL player agent. So, uh, Brian, let's bring you in. Thanks for being on the show. And we're just going to have a little bit of fun today. Talk about your career and and what you're doing now. So hello to Brian. Hey, Jeremy. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Definitely, uh, appreciate it. It's been great following uh, the podcast, you know, since you started up. So, I uh, appreciate you uh, squeezing me in. Of course, um, more like more like you squeezing me in, Brian. <laughs> but I appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, so uh, obviously, um, I've I've followed your career. You've had an amazing career. From you know, you went to USD for undergrad. You went to Thomas Jefferson for law school. Uh, you've got together with um, the Alliance, and you've got some terrific clients. So, can you tell us a little bit about? uh, sort of your background, you know, how you got started and and where you are today. Sure. So I'm originally from San Luis Obispo, California. Uh, and what came down to San Diego, as you mentioned, to university of San Diego for college, I had the opportunity of being a walk on to the football team under Jim Harbaugh in his first coaching gig. I really felt like that was a, master's level course into football. And so once I had that experience, met some of you know, my best friends through that opportunity, I had already planned on going to law school. I actually studied English lit in college. And that was a deviation from a lot of other, I think uh, undergrad majors that are recommended for law students. But I had been told actually at a high school career fair that to be a good attorney, you need to be able to read and write it well. And so I chose English, uh, which worked out for me. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. It was entertaining. I do think it strengthened my, you know, my reading and writing skills. Um, but I knew in college that I wanted to go to law school no matter what. And so once I got to Thomas Jefferson with you, you know, I started thinking about, well, what type of law do I want to do I want to practice? You know, I did, there are no attorneys in my family. It was the first one that I really knew. Um, and so I just started thinking like, well, you know, my passion is sports. I've loved, you know, sports, like a lot of other people from day one, had a chance to play club baseball, won a, a national championship with the Rangers club baseball team. Uh, we won a USABF title when I was in high school. And I just thought, you know what, man, it would be a blessing and the best of both worlds if I could work in sports as an attorney. And so that first year at Tom Jefferson, I tried to network as much as possible. And networking was something that I didn't fully appreciate or understand while I was at the University of San Diego. And to be honest, it was an opportunity that I missed out on. Um, and so when I got to law school, I really just tried to put my neck out there. You know, I, I was pretty quiet, pretty shy still at that time and just tried to introduce myself to as many people as possible. I showed up to every pro day in Southern California. I talked to scouts, talked to agents, talked to coaches, literally anyone and everyone in the industry who would give me just five minutes of their time. And so through the course of that process, um, I gained a lot of valuable information, but nothing really kind of came out of it and it wasn't until I I reconnected with a friend from college an ex-girlfriend in fact 
who ended up introducing me to the CEO and founder of our agency, Rocky Arsenault. And, you know, thankfully, Rocky gave me an opportunity when I was in law school to come on just as an intern. You know, there, there were no promises of anything more or greater. And, you know, just uh, an opportunity to, to learn and an opportunity to, to show value, which, you know, thankfully, I was able to do perfectly. Um, and here we are, you know, now 12 years later, which is mind blowing to me to think that, you know, time has flown by that fast and, you know, that we've gone really this far. Um, and that, yeah, brings us up to today. No, well, thanks, Brian. It's so funny. I think one of the reasons why you and I have gotten along so well over the years is, um, well, I think we both like each other. <laughs> I think we're both, uh, both have similar personalities, <laughs> <Not> so <bad>. <laughs> but, uh, um, I think it's also because we have such similar backgrounds, you know, like we both grew up in like very loving families, but also, you know, we were both the first to go to college, you know, first generation to go to college. Um, and then not only go to college, but then go to graduate school and then become lawyers. Right. And same as you, I, it's a funny looking back. I did not know one lawyer I, I, that I can remember growing up, you know, every lawyer that I met was either in law school or, you know, after. And so I'm sure you were sort of the same way. A lot of what we learned growing up is what we saw on TV or sort of, you know, and we, of course, both chose our practice areas on what our passion was um, versus, you know, getting into something else. And I guess maybe kind of leads me to my next question. Maybe talk a little bit about the grind of, um, you know, you mentioned the 12 year mark, talk a little about the grind and sort of how difficult it is to kind of break in and, and to really sustain success. Yeah. The interesting thing about sports, um, you know, and everyone talks about it, how, how hard it is to break in, right? Like, how do you do it? And the thing is, I think with sports, once you get your foot in the door, then it's easier to push the door a little bit further open. But it, that doesn't mean that the door is always trying to close on you. And I think that that remains true probably through your first few years, um, especially in this part of the industry, right? Being an agent, and you know this firsthand, being an agent is for all intents and purposes, ultimately being in sales. And so not only do you have to sell yourself, you know, to potential clients, but then once you have clients, you have to sell them to these other organizations. And so it's multifaceted on kind of the sales level. And as anyone in sales knows, it's a very low rate of success. You know, this is similar to baseball, you kind of have to thrive on failure and thrive on being told no to ultimately be successful. And I think that that dynamic and element is unknown for a lot of people who want to break into sports, at least on the agency side. You know, I can't speak for some of the other roles that, you know, are available to, to people out there in sports, but at least in trying to be an agent, the most difficult aspect that people don't realize when they first start is that it is a sales job essentially with a very long sales cycle, right? I mean, from the time that you meet uh, a prospective client to the time that you make money on that client, you know, once they sign at a minimum is going to probably be six months, if not a year to even think about that. And the reality is it's going to be, closer to two to six years away. And so you can imagine, you've experienced this firsthand where, I mean, you can beat your head against the wall pretty much over and over again for an extended period of time. And it's gonna take its toll on anybody. Um, and so to anyone who's interested in pursuing, you know, this type of career, I would just make sure that you come in with open eyes and recognize that the challenges of it, yes, it's a competitive field, but I don't think it being a competitive field is 
the number one obstacle to overcome. I think it's the amount of determination and resiliency that ultimately is going to determine your success. You know, the reality is if you try at something long enough, you should be able to figure it out. Um, and so I think just being able to find a way to persevere kind of through that learning curve is, is paramount to, to being able to so-called, you know, make it in the industry. No, thanks for that, Brian. That's some really good insight. And, you know, it is interesting because anytime I talk to, to folks who are wanting to get into the sports or entertainment industry, I always tell them it's really about being the last person standing. Um, yep. You know, I always tell the story that when we were one uh, L's in law school, there was like a sports and entertainment society event. And we probably had, you know, 400 people show up to that event because we had, <laughs> you know, what a thousand, 1200 students in law school at the time. And then we had, I mean, I think an incoming class of 398 students. And so all those people showed up, but by the time that you graduated in your year and when I graduated, I think we were a semester apart, but by the time I graduated, there was nobody in my class pursuing sports. And I think right. the same was for you. So yep. it goes to show you that, you know, people's interests change, their, um, their passions change. And I think, you know, when I came into law school, I wanted to be a district attorney. And then of course, now I, I couldn't be doing something more different, uh, you know, from that. So Brian, tell us a little bit about some of the clients that you're working with uh, and um, sort of maybe the, the general process of maybe negotiating a contract for a player, really just starting from the recruiting stage all the way through, um, you know, like present day in terms of, you know, you start with a guy maybe in high school and then you move through and, and I can definitely, you know, you were mentioned earlier about the, uh, the recruiting stuff. It's funny because when I was first getting started, you and I, you and I pretty much started around the same time and you were doing football and I was doing a little bit of baseball. And it's so funny because, you know, it's like with football, somewhat of the saving grace, even though it's still a difficult sport, is this idea that, you know, you basically have, you know, three years in college and then, you know, you're signing a rookie contract. And then, like you said, you're waiting a few years before you really get the big free agent deal. You know, it's like, as you know, in baseball, it's like these guys, you might have a draftee at 17. He goes in, but he spends six years in the minors. You know, he doesn't come out until he's 23, 24, 25. And then he's still got to wait six years before he becomes a free agent. And then he's, he's lucky if he goes to the arbitration process. But so tell us a little bit about sort of the recruiting process and and to sort of present day in terms of uh, clients that you're working with and all that. Sure. So recruiting in, in the NFL is interesting and it's interesting and different from the other major sports uh, for a couple of specific reasons. Most notably, the you don't see, let me backtrack. It come, guys coming out of high school, you can have the top recruits in the entire country. And to a certain extent, a lot of those players will go to major D1 programs and they will develop into future pro athletes. But the reality is that in football, there's a huge gap between the physical growth that happens for high school kids throughout their first few years of college, their mental growth and their skill set. So that's why you see players, you know, come from literally every, you know, college around the country. Um, and so it's hard to get a jump uh, in football the way you you could, I should say, in, let's say, you know, basketball or baseball. You know, my understanding is that with basketball recruiting, you pretty much know who the top prospects are you know, through the AAU circuit at 14, 15 years old. And then just assuming that they grow even a little bit more, you know, I mean, kids these days are, I mean, Wheaties must be pumped full of something because these kids are monsters, right? But in basketball, you typically have an idea of who's going to be the best. Uh, baseball, similar, right? You have the top prospects are going to get drafted right away. 
if the money's not right, you know, some kids will go back to college. But for the most part, you know, a lot of them, their skill set plus physical tools are already evident. Football is a lot less of that. And so the first couple of years of a football player's career in college are paramount to their future success and whether or not they're going to have an, an NFL career. So for us, really the recruiting process starts once we see talented players uh, at the collegiate level, you know, whether that's after our freshman year, sophomore year, junior, senior, um, the more years of quality film you have, the more likely that you're going to get drafted and get drafted high, right? Um, and so that could show up for a kid at any point. Some showcase and stand out immediately as freshmen. You know, they go to whatever program they're at, they start as freshmen, and then they ascend from there. Some guys, it takes them a year to, you know, to develop. I think about my former college teammate and roommate and friend, Josh Johnson. You know, coming out of high school, Josh came from Oakland uh, Tech in Oakland, California. And I think coming out of high school, he was 5'10", 5'11". And through the first two years in college, he shot up to 6'3 plus, you know? And so Josh ended up having uh, a long NFL career. Still, he's with the San Francisco 49ers now, but has carved out a nice little, you know, niche for himself in that backup quarterback category. But he came from the University of San Diego, right? And I an opportunity to go pro regardless of his skill set and his intelligence because he's one of the smartest players I've been around probably wouldn't have been given that opportunity if he remained you know 510 5'11. so you know it's just one small example of of how much growth can take place for a player you know in a short period of time and so once we identify you know the talent then trying to build a relationship right whether that's through coaches or friends or family members or direct connection to the athlete, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do is showcase who we are and let them in, you know, let them into our life and hopefully they let us into theirs a little bit so that we each can fully understand who the other person is, what their needs and wants are, and ultimately what we could do to help them on this journey, uh, you know, for future success. So once that happens, you know, players, let's say a player, you know, decides to, to sign with the agency, then go through the pre-draft process. So that's analyzing everything from, do you go to an all-star game? Where do you go to train, you know, for the combine? Do you need medical assistance? The one thing about football is a lot of guys finish the season beat up, you know? It's pretty, pretty grueling for these kids, you know, and I tell all of them, that the year they transfer from college to the NFL is going to be the longest year of their life, right? Because they just came off of a full season. Then they have, you know, if the team's successful, a bowl game or even college football playoffs. That finishes, you know, let's say around January 1, maybe extends further for the playoffs. And then you're looking at senior bowl and all-star games mid to end of January. A month later, you have the combine. Then you have your pro day, which you still need to attend regardless of whether you ultimately perform or not. Then you're going to basically have uh, a month until the draft. In the meantime, if you're a top prospect, you're taking 30 visits. Well, they're called top 30 visits to teams, right? And, and or teams are coming to your school to take a look at you, work you out. So this whole time you're busy, then the draft happens, then, you know, in non-COVID years, you would have your rookie mini camp, either the first or second week after the draft, you go out to that, and then you're basically there, right? Then you're with the team up until your break before camp, you'll get a month off, you know, mid-June, mid-July, then you go to camp, then you go into a grueling, you know, 16 game, 17 week stretch, of the regular season that pushes you all the way through the end of December, right? And if your team is good again, 
now you guys are going to the playoffs, you know, and you could be playing football until next February. So, you know, this stretch for guys, if they happen to be on the most talented teams and successful teams, and even if they're not, is basically over a year straight of nothing but football. Um, and so it takes a toll on their bodies. And some, for some guys that are coming out of college already kind of beat up, you know, one of the first things that we look at is, hey, how, how are they feeling? Are they healthy medically? What do they need? And then make decisions, you know, based on that. And so just trying to help guide them through the entire process, you know, up to the draft. So then to, to get to your other question of, you know, clients that we work with, uh, I'll just start with this year's rookie class. Uh, first round pick, Clyde Edwards-Alaire out of LSU national champion, went to the Kansas City Chiefs. Then third round pick, Julian Blackman out of the University of Utah is a safety, went to the Indianapolis Colts. And then linebacker, Chris Barnes out of UCLA went undrafted to the Green Bay Packers. And then on top of those guys, we have a few other veterans that are still in the league. Ezekiel Elliott, we uh, probably the most notable, negotiated his contract uh, and was there for the holdout. Nikel Roby Coleman, uh, top corner over at the Philadelphia Eagles, have Elijah and Rashad Penny. Elijah is the starting fullback for the New York Giants. And his younger brother, Rashad, first round pick for the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, we have Ricky Seals-Jones, tight end at Kansas City. And Adoree Jackson, corner at the Tennessee Titans. Wow. Can we just end the show right there? Or? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, All right. Thanks for having me. Right, anytime. I'll talk to you later. Um, no, that's great, Brian. I mean, I love how you went through methodically the process, right? Because that is so important for an athlete in general, but it's so important also for the agent and the lawyers and everybody else involved. Because when you're talking about what's the process, it's like, well, you know, it starts, you know, basically in college and then, um, and then when they declare for the draft, you're preparing them for the draft and you're investing in that. And then you're going to the combine, right? And I remember every year I'd talk to you and we'd be having these long phone calls just talking about business. And you'd be like, I'd be like, where are you at? And you'd be like, oh, I'm in Indianapolis at the combine, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was like every year. And, um, and or, or like for me, it was like I was out at spring training or something, you know? But it, it to me, it wasn't as grueling as the football process is. Now, Obviously, that contract that you signed with uh, that Zeke signed uh, for the Cowboys, one of like the misnomers is that this idea that um, the questions always asked, well, hey, did you negotiate the contract with Jerry Jones? Can you kind of inform the audience about what really occurs in those situations? Sure. Um, so I mean, Jerry is obviously owner, general manager, head honcho. And so all decisions start with Jerry. Um, but as I'm sure many people can imagine, you know, the daily decisions and power kind of ha has fallen to, you know, his son, Steven. So Steven now makes a lot of those day-to-day -day sort of decisions. Um, but then ultimately every team, and this is not just exclusive to the Cowboys, but every team has a person who ultimately is in charge of actually negotiating the contracts on behalf of the team. You know, these are the salary cap guys. They're the numbers nerds. Um, and I say that very affectionately because I would consider myself one of those kind of guys. And so, you know, the majority of the process, you know, Rocky Arsenault, our CEO and founder, initiated that, that conversation with Jerry Jones about, hey, you know, should we you know, actually begin negotiating and do a deal with uh, only three years into his contract. So, and that was the earliest, just for, for the audience's kind of edification. On a rookie contract, you're not allowed to sign or renegotiate a new deal until after three years has passed. So that was the earliest date that was even, you know, available to us to discuss a new contract. And obviously through the first three years of Zeke's career, his numbers were historic. And so, 
you know, Rocky and Jerry came together and agreed, you know what, now's the time to, to build this, this organization and time to do the deal. Right. So then it got passed down to myself and Adam Prasifka, who is the, uh, the Cowboys, you know, contract guy. And we were the ones going back and forth on, you know, numbers and language through the course of negotiation to, you know, ultimately come to the deal uh, that we signed right before the start of the season. Wow, that's awesome. Um, yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know, because uh, one of the other sort of, and of course, that was a $90 million contract for six years, which is the most, I think the highest contract for, for a running back in NFL history, right? Yeah, it was. Um, so it was a, well, it's funny how the media always promotes things. It technically was a eight year, $103 million deal. And the six year 90 was just the extension. So, you know, with that, Zeke broke a bunch of records, right? I mean, he became the first $100 million running back, became the highest running back paid in pretty much in league history and pretty much every single category that you could quantify, you know, from total value, average per year, total guaranteed money, fully guaranteed money. Um, I mean, we were able to, to check every single box, which, you know, his, his play had warranted. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm impressed, Brian. And um, I mean, um, as a, as a friend and as a colleague, you know, it's, it's, it's honest, it's an honor to know you and, and, and to be friends with you. And I'm glad that we were able to do this. I'll sort of end with um, one other quick question and well, maybe two, if, if you've got the time. And I guess the, the first would be, you know, a lot of times people have so that there's a misnomer about the work that goes into working with, you know, with athletes in terms of all the things you have to do. Cause it's not just negotiating contracts, right? Um, that's maybe like two to 5% of what you do. And then there's all the other stuff that you do. So let's talk a little bit about that. And then I want to talk a little bit about name image likeness uh, and then we'll close from there. Does that work with you? Yeah. Uh, anything for you, man. So, all right. Thanks, uh, <laughs> uh, let's see the first question again, just yeah. So first question is just sort of talk a little bit about the process with regard to like what, what goes into managing oh. clients. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I think what sets us apart is, as you mentioned, I mean, the negotiating the contracts is 5% of what we do, you know, and I say that from the standpoint of, you know, you have a rookie and you help boost their draft stock and put them in the best position to be successful, right? I mean, if you take a look at Clyde Edwards-Alaire this year, I don't think anybody, you know, at least other than us and Clyde thought that Clyde was going to be a first round running back and the first running back taken overall. You know, I think a lot of the media pundits had him listed as third or fourth. Um, and to be honest, that's been pretty consistent with a lot of our clients, you know, over time. And so I think, you know, the agent starts by helping boost the player's draft stock, right? Uh, putting them in a position to, to try and be as successful as possible. But then once that happens, right, once the player's drafted, now they're under contract for the next three, four, five years, depending on their situation. So you're obviously not negotiating contracts with the team during that time span, you know? And so what else are you doing? Well, you know, for us, we consider ourselves a concierge agency. So that literally means anything and everything. You know, I think the basics people would expect and anticipate is going to be negotiating an apparel deal or a trading card deal or, you know, something along that lines with marketing. But then the rest of the time, you know, is spent just helping, helping our guys with their transition. So, need help finding housing, buying cars, you know, making sure that family members are, are taken care of. You know, our, our philosophy is that if 
players have all these off the field distractions that are interfering with, you know, their life in stressful ways, then as much as we can to help mitigate or eliminate, you know, those distractions or issues, we're going to do that so that ultimately they can be stress and worry free to focus on their career. You know, the NFL is a, a ruthless business, right? Everyone could say that it's a business, but a lot of people don't fully comprehend what that means. And the athletes for sure don't fully understand what that means until they're in it. And sometimes by the time you're in it and you learn and recognize how ruthless it is, you're learning from personal experience rather than watching somebody else, you know? So I think for a lot of athletes, their time in the NFL is short lived and often they can't control it, but there are a lot of times when an athlete could have prevented them, you know, from their, a, a premature exit from the NFL if they had been more aware, right? Or if they'd been more focused. I think that there's just a general conception when you've been the best that player you've been around your whole life, right? You're the best youth football player, best high school football player, best college player. Then you get to the NFL and you still feel like you're the best and you are, right? You make it to the NFL, you are the best. But once you're in the NFL, it's a completely different beast to stay there. Right. I mean, we talked earlier about breaking into the industry as an agent and then sticking. It's similar to NFL players. Right. Once you make it to the NFL, then the league has collectively decided that you have the skills to be there. Now it all comes down to are you mentally going to be able to overcome a very steep learning curve in a very short amount of time? to then prolong your career, right? Then you make it another year, you know? Then you make it another year. And pretty soon after clawing and fighting year after year, you've carved yourself out a nice little career, you know? And so in order for players to get there, obviously it takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of hard work. And we feel like it's our job in the times and periods where we're not negotiating contracts and we're not dealing with business to help assist our players and their families as much as possible, whatever that means, you know, tell all the guys, you got a problem, you call me, we'll work through it together. I love that, Brian. And that gives a nice perspective, right. To folks who, who are thinking about getting into that space and, and really for anybody um, who wants to know more about the industry. So last question and it has to do with name image likeness. And I, we've talked about this a bunch. And, you know, obviously there's the California version, which is the fair pay, to, fair pay to Play Act. And you've got other versions around the country with, you know, Florida and some other states that have done this. One of the trends that, I, and I want to get your thoughts on this. One of the trends that I'm seeing and that we're seeing is that a lot of, you have like these private groups that are, um, you know, companies that are now signing with colleges to become like the official NIL marketing teams, um, almost as an extension of the athletic department or the university, right, for the athletes, um, and sort of seeing how that model might play out. So in some sense, right, I think it first started with this idea that no players can't, you know, capitalize their name, image, and likeness, it violates, you know, amateurism rules, right? the whole, you can't sign a contract and you can't receive anything of value. Um, but now we're seeing NCAA, they obviously, you know, uh, changed course when states started to begin to pass laws. And as athletic departments have begun to make more money from television dollars and sponsorship deals like UCLA's Under Armour deal for $280 million or whatever it was, which is now in question. Um, but what do you kind of think about that that space, Brian? Do you think it's going to be a huge thing for for college athletes? Uh, do you not think it's going to be a, a big thing? And then the second part is really, how do you feel about the NCAA having uh, a strong involvement with name, image, and likeness, or do you prefer maybe the more free market approach? So those two questions, and we can we can call it a day. Yeah. Um... You know, name image likeness is 
it's interesting from the standpoint of it really was originated by the public and the states and is now infringing on what it has been historically uh, the NCAA's kind of like iron grip on college athletics, right? And so you're starting to see them loosen that up because they have to, not because they want to. Um, I don't think the NCAA by any means is excited about this turn of events, but you know, they're adapting slowly. So I will say that I, I think for equality and fairness, there does need to be, it needs to be decided on a national level. Um, I think providing a, you know, quote unquote, fair market approach at an individual state level will just lead to too many, too many issues and problems, right? So not necessarily that it should be coming from the NCAA, um, but I do think that it needs to come from a, a national perspective, kind of just to start, right? In terms of how it's going to affect, you know, the ultimate climate, I think there's a big misconception over how much money collegiate athletes can make with name and image likeness. Now, certain players absolutely are gonna make a lot of money. You know, you look at like a Trevor Lawrence at Clemson or, you know, Fields at Ohio State. Those guys are in positions where they're the quarterback of extremely successful teams with a fervent fan base and they're gonna to be top picks in the draft, right? At a position that is ideal for marketing teams. So those kind of guys could make some serious money in college. But the reality is the majority of athletes are not going to rise to the level of fame to really warrant making money off their name, image, or likeness, right? And so I think you'll see a boon for, for some athletes. And I, it's long overdue, right? I mean, these guys are producing billions of dollars for the universities and NCAA and saying that they get an education in return is, is crap, you know? I think about my cousin who was recruited out of college, you know, to, as an engineer and was paid ultimately, you know, signing bonus, signed a contract, all that because of her skill set, right? No different than a student athlete other than the fact that they're playing on, you know, a sport. I mean, she was there for uh, academic scholarships and, you know, inherently very similar situation. And she was able to maximize her skill set and get paid for it, whereas college athletes are. So now I think, especially for the players that are great college athletes that don't ultimately have, you know, pro potential, they could earn a little bit of money. Um, but where I really see the big change that is going to be important is going to be for all the athletes who previously maybe knew that they weren't going to go pro, right? And this could be in a lot of the other sports, right? A lot of the, what we call non-revenue producing sports in college, where either there is no pro league or going pro means making it to the Olympics, which is exponentially even more difficult, you know? And all those athletes are the types that are more likely to start a business in college, right? Or be creative or do something else because their entire future is not dependent on, you know, going pro. And the same can be said for NFL athletes. I met a lot of NFL or I guess NFL prospects, right? Over the years who had some, some business that they started in college and they couldn't associate them playing with their business, right? They couldn't say like, hey, this is who I am. And not that they're trying to utilize, you know, the school name logo, not that they're trying to do anything from that standpoint, other than just say, this is who I am. Like I am an athlete and I'm selling athletic t-shirts, right? Those, those things are relevant. But to have to disassociate, you know, who you are in the community 
an order for some arbitrary rule so that you can't make money on your own name, image, and likeness is, is crazy. So I think we're going to see that go away and that should open up the doors. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll see what ultimately happens, um, but it should open up the doors to allow your everyday college athlete, regardless of whether they play, you know, tennis, golf, swimming, diving, you know, lacrosse, rugby, gymnastics, like literally any and every sport, they should now be allowed to maximize their situation, right? Maximize their contacts, maximize their network base and maximize their name, image and likeness to help accelerate, you know, their, their success in life and their careers outside of athletics while using that platform while they're in school. Um, so I think that's probably where we'll see the biggest change. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing, you know, social media classes taught at the university level to teach, you know, not just athletes, but all students how to actually maximize, you know, this, this new wave. Um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, but that's kind of where I, I see the biggest impact coming. Oh, thanks, Brian. Um, that's awesome. I love your analysis of that. And I definitely think the national model is probably best when you're talking about equality in terms of recruiting for schools, right? And for opportunity, you'd want the, the law to be seamless for on all NCAA athletes. And if they wonder if they were a little profit off their name, image, and likeness, right. Versus one state having, like, I think New York had a proposed law that was going to give the athletes a percentage of the television dollars. Whereas the law in California is just strictly free market. Um, and of course you got a lot of these businesses popping up that are wanting to partake in that process. Um, I'd be curious if, if agencies just move the clock back and just begin working with, you know, with athletes sooner on the name image likeness stuff, and then eventually transition into the draft, you know, preparation. Um, so final question, this would be a quick one, I hope. So, uh, and we definitely went over the 15 minutes of fame, Mark. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're pushing, see, but you're so famous, Brian, we got to go, we got to go an hour, man. That's, that's, that's what it is. But man, you got to um, tell me to stop talking. I'll just ramble and ramble and go on. <laughs> Uh, we, I, I love it, man. It's good stuff. Uh, so, all right. So one of the questions that sort of popped up is this idea of the, the, the junior rule. Obviously the NBA has the one and done. They've kind of moved away from that. Um, the commissioner, Adam Silver's talked about maybe getting rid of that in 2023. And in the meantime, they've created this professional pathways league through the G league where high school students can go directly into do you think the NFL will ever have a minor league system? Do you think the NFL will ever get rid of the three, sort of the three-year rule, the junior rule? Or do you think we're kind of stuck in, in where we're at? The, the NFL will never have a minor league. That's for sure. Um, and it doesn't make sense for the NFL to have a minor league when you have the NCAA providing it for you, right? Um, that, you know, these other leagues that have popped up, the AAF, the XFL, not that they've tried to be a minor league, but I think that they've popped up with the realization that they're not going to directly compete with the NFL. So if they can be complimentary, right. It's why they've been showing up in the spring um, that they may also fill that role. Not that you will replace the NCAA, but be an enhancement, right? Because every team after, you know, every team has 90 man rosters, going into training camp, but then they all cut down to 53. So, you know, I mean, you're cutting 40% of the roster. 10 of those guys are going to end up on practice squad, but then the rest are just to the win, right? So now you have about a thousand players once roster cuts come down who are just out there. What do they do? I mean, those are the guys that are, you know, kind of scraping and clawing to, to make it. And those are the ones who have the best chance, right? If you're not within that initial group, it's, you know, depending on your position, it's going to be very difficult to, to make it in. Um, and so these leagues like the AAF and XFL, they essentially take that collection of a thousand players, right? 
they're, they're still the best of the best. It's just the ones who are just right on the verge of making it to the NFL who don't. And it gives them an opportunity to continue to develop and provide their skills, which is the closest thing that we'll see to minors. But we'll never see a true minor league system in football the way, you know, that we do in, in basketball and baseball or, or any other sport, you know, for that matter. Um, and then in terms of the three-year rule, I, I could see it dropping down to two. I think there's been enough players that after two years, and, and to be honest, predominantly quarterbacks, but there are enough players out there that showcase after two years that they are not only skilled enough to be elite at the NFL level, but they're also, you know, big enough big and strong enough. Um, and so I think some of the like initial physical concerns of is a guy developed enough, you know, to go play in the NFL. I mean, like I mentioned before, kids these days are, are eating their Wheaties. Like it's crazy how big and fast and strong, you know, some of these kids are. And it's different than when you and I were growing up. Right. I mean, there were personal trainers and there was stuff that you could do, but it was very few and far between. Right. I mean, there were, there weren't these seven on seven leagues. There wasn't all these camps, you know, all that sort of stuff. Trainers, not every kid had a trainer, you know, all this stuff is, is new. And so the younger generation, they're getting taught at a much younger age about strength and conditioning. They're getting better, you know, skill education. I mean, I remember growing up and everyone knew that if you wanted to get faster, you had to go run sand dunes. And that was pretty much it. Like you either ran sand dunes to get faster or you didn't get faster really, you know? And so now kids, I mean, they have parachutes and ropes and bungee cords and, you know, all the different, you know, little tools that, that help prepare them. And as a result, you have, you know, kids that are bigger, stronger, faster, more skilled coming out younger, right? So I could see there ultimately being an agreement to drop it from three down to two. But I don't think it'll ever go away, to be honest. And not that I know this or anything, because I, I don't. This is pure, you know, speculative conjecture. But I have a feeling that the NCAA and NFL kind of have like a wink not agreement with each other of this system works. Let's leave it alone, right? You know, because the colleges, I mean, you got to think about if you have a top player who generates a lot of buzz and attention and revenue for your program, if they're leaving after two years, you just lost a year of value from them. And it's no guarantee that you're going to replace that, right? I mean, Clemson has been a powerhouse, but who's going to come in and fill the shoes of Trevor Lawrence? Probably another baller, you know? I mean, let's be honest. But there's no guarantee that they're going to rise immediately to the level of success and fame that, that Trevor has. And that is not necessarily going to correlate into you know, ticket sales and merchandise revenue and all the other things that these programs take into account, right? I mean, at the end of the day, our educational system is a business. So everything is looked at financially with a fine tooth comb. Um, so I don't think we'll ever, uh, ever really see massive changes. Maybe they drop a year off, but the reality is more and more kids are declaring earlier for the draft and then end up going undrafted, right? Um, and so that could be for any number of reasons, but I think because guys have always been the best, they, they overvalue, you know, some do. I mean, some know exactly what their value is and where they stand, you know, in the scheme, but there are a lot of kids that probably should stay for, you know, fourth year or even a fifth year to help you know, refine their skill set, produce better film, and increase their stock to give themselves a better opportunity, you know, at a professional career. So, yeah, and so, I mean, in summary, no to the minors ever, and probably pretty unlikely that much changes on the three-year rule. No, thanks, Brian. Yeah, and that's, that's obviously one of the biggest things you hear, right, is this idea that the physicality and the speed of the game is so much different uh, when it comes to the NFL versus the NCAA. And, you know, and maybe a, it's a good exchange that 
you know, the players get to do name, image, and likeness and can sort of have that extra cash, so to speak, as they're going to college, working on a degree and then playing sports. Um, if those rules are never changed, it's kind of like the, the old quote from Mike Vrabel, the uh, head coach of um, uh, the Tennessee Titans, right? When a reporter once asked him, you know, why doesn't the NFL have a minor league? And he said, what are you talking about? It's the NCAA. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so, and, it, and it's true. I mean, it, it does work well between, uh, between those two entities. But uh, again, Brian, I appreciate you being on. Um, um, you know, again, we were only supposed to go for 15 minutes, but I couldn't resist asking you more questions and, <laughs> uh, and always enjoy our conversations. And it felt like we were just on the phone as we sort of normally have our talks, but I uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon. I really appreciate um, you being on and um, it, if that you got a closing word, I'll, I'll close out the show. Not that, that's it. I appreciate you, brother. Thanks for having me on and I look forward to doing it again. All right. Thanks, Brian. All right. For everybody, this has been Brian Hanula. He's an NFL agent and an attorney. He's with the Alliance represents players like Zeke Elliott, who is the highest paid running back in NFL history. So uh, he can put that feather in his cap, but really appreciate Brian. And um, again, I'm your host, Jeremy Evans. This is believe in sports law via the believe podcast network, wishing you all a wonderful Thanksgiving and look forward to being back with you next week. Thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks. That's what our podcast. People are the worst brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.